Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. It's great to be back with you for another study in the Word of God. Make your way to Ephesians chapter 1. The true story comes out of Chicago of a man by the name of Dr. Leo Winters. Dr. Winters is a surgeon that has a reputation that precedes him. He's a very skilled surgeon. He's an expert. He's the guy that you would want cutting on you if you had to have an operation. One night at about one in the morning, his phone rang. As he woke up and answered the call, he found out that there had been an accident and they needed him for a surgery to save someone's life. The quickest way to the hospital was through a tough part of town, but time was short, so it was worth the risk. Well, sure enough, as Dr. Winters was waiting at a stoplight, his car door was yanked open by a man with a gray hat and a dirty flannel shirt. The man screamed at him and told him that he had to have his car. The man pulled Dr. Winters out of his seat, and Dr. Winters tried to explain to him how serious the situation was. But the man wouldn't listen. Dr. Winters was finally able to get a cab and make his way to the hospital. But over an hour had gone by, and when he got to the hospital, he found out he was too late. The patient had died 30 minutes before he'd gotten there. But the nurse told him that the father of the victim had gone to the chapel, wondering why the doctor never came. Dr. Winters hurried down to the chapel, and when he walked in, he saw the father wearing a gray hat and a dirty flannel shirt. The father had pushed from his life the one who could save his son. I think this is a fitting illustration for the actions of Christians, whether they know it or not. Believers pushing from their lives the one who can save them from the power of sin, pushing away the one who can save them from their emptiness, pushing away the one who can save them from their despair and their hopelessness in life, pushing away the one who can save them from having a life that feels meaningless. As redeemed men and women in Christ, our purpose, our joy is found in living for the Lord Jesus Christ. Living for self produces emptiness, and if you want your life to count for absolutely nothing, then you should continue down that path. But if you want to have your life count for the greatest cause in this world, then live your life for the Lord Jesus Christ. Life will not be perfect, but you will find the joy of the Lord. You'll find his strength and his peace. This is the message Paul gives us in Ephesians 1. Let's pick up our text. Ephesians chapter 1, we start with verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption, through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, 
in whom also, having believed, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. We're jumping in midstream and we're just hitting the highlights today of this text. Verse 6 teaches us to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In the second half of the verse, we're talking about God the Father. God the Father made us accepted in the beloved by his grace. The beloved is a reference to Christ. This is a messianic title. The wording refers to one who is in the state of being loved by God. So here it refers to the love of God the Father for God the Son. Think of the simple beauty of this phrase. By God's grace we are accepted into Christ. Romans 1 teaches us that as believers in Christ we too are beloved of God. Now God the Father loves Christ and since we are accepted by God into Christ we also receive his eternal love. Before we move on, I want you to see something else in this verse that is absolutely just powerful. The word for accepted, it literally means to make accepted or to grace. So think of Paul's understanding in this verse of the work of Christ. It's like a double focus on grace. Literally, Paul was saying, God has graced us with his grace. Look now at how he starts verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. The idea given here is of paying a ransom in order to release a person from bondage, releasing someone from slavery. The Roman Empire had millions of slaves, and if you had a loved one that was a slave, if you wanted to free that person, you'd have to purchase them. And then once you owned them, you could grant their freedom. You'd have to write out a certificate for the person to carry, testifying of their newfound freedom. This is the idea behind the word for redemption in verse 7, that Jesus Christ atoned for the sins of man. He paid the redemption price to buy for himself fallen mankind and to set us free from our sin. The idea is that those who choose to accept his gift are free not only from the penalty of sin, but we are free from the enslaving power of sin. This is why 12-step groups and psychologists have very little to offer the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, because we have been freed from the bondage of sin. Notice what the cost of our redemption was. It was through his blood. The price for our freedom was death. Jesus Christ paid the debt in full. In verse 7, we learn that redemption means the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Forgiveness goes hand in hand with redemption. You cannot have one without the other. To forgive means to give up the right to punish the person for their transgression. When someone is forgiven, it's never brought up again. The forgiveness of God is something we could never receive on our own. Leviticus 16 teaches that one of Israel's great holy days was Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. And on that day, the high priest would select two unblemished sacrificial goats. One goat was killed, and his blood was spread on the altar as a sacrifice. The high priest would then place his hands on the head of the other goat, symbolically laying the sins of the people on this animal. The goat would then be taken out into the wilderness, so far out that it could never find its way back. The symbolic act was to show that the sins of the people went with the goat, never to return to them again. It was a beautiful picture for the people of what God himself would accomplish through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And this is a type of forgiveness that we should have in mind, that for the believer in Christ, through the shedding of Christ's blood, Jesus actually carried away the debt of sin so that it could never return. The word for forgiveness was a legal term. It meant to repay or cancel a debt or to grant a pardon. Our pardon in Christ means that every sin, past, present, and future, they are all paid for at the cross of Calvary. To be in fellowship with the Lord, we need to seek continual forgiveness. Our sins that we commit still have consequences. They affect our walk with Christ. They affect our growth in Christ, our joy in the Lord, our peace in our lives, our usefulness to the work of God, and our ability to have intimate fellowship with the Lord. But our sins do not affect our redemption. Notice at the end of verse 7, we see that this forgiveness comes according to to the riches of his grace. This is an awesome statement that describes the depth of God's grace. If you went up to a wealthy man and asked him to give some money to an important ministry, and he only gave $20, he wouldn't be giving according to his riches. He would be giving out of his riches. But if he gave you a check for $200,000 or a million dollars, well, he would be giving then according to his riches. Same idea here. God was more than generous with his grace. Verse 8, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. You meet some people in life who have a hard time understanding the depth of God's forgiveness. Maybe they've had an abortion. Maybe they killed someone. And their concern is that God cannot or will not forgive them for their sin. But if we could understand the depth of God's grace, then we would be able to understand the depth of his love and his forgiveness. Paul tells us here in verse 8 that God made his grace abound toward us. It literally means he had showed us more than enough grace, more than enough love, and more than enough forgiveness. The last part of verse 8 where it talks about in all wisdom and prudence The idea here is that God has granted us wisdom and insight into the things of God. But this is more than just insight into life and death. It includes the idea here that God has even given us insight into how to handle the problems that we run into down here, how to live our lives as we walk by faith. Truly, His grace is beyond measure. Verses 9 and 10. Having made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. The basic idea is that out of God's grace he has shared his plans with us. The mystery of his will is a major theme all throughout this letter, the mystery of God, how God has chosen to use the work of Jesus Christ and how God has chosen to use his church to accomplish his will. In verse 10, Paul uses an interesting phrase. It can be translated either the dispensation or the administration of the fullness of times. This is a reference here to the millennium. This gathering together in this verse refers to the time when Christ will set up his kingdom on earth, when Christ will reign instead of the kings of men. There is an important concept here and in chapter 3 that someday I want to come back to. But for now, verse 11, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. 
part of God's plan as his children is that God has an inheritance for us. Keep in mind the theme of grace, that an inheritance is not something you earn. It's something you receive because of your position as a son or daughter. This inheritance is only ours because of the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then look at that next phrase, we have obtained an inheritance. This is all one word in the Greek. Paul is simply telling us that it is a part of God's plan from the beginning of time that those who are redeemed by Christ will receive this inheritance of eternal life with our Lord. Now, I want you to notice something in the text. In verse 11, Paul says, we, we have obtained an inheritance. In verse 12, we see that Paul says, we who first trusted, which must refer to a specific group of Christians. And in verse 13, Paul says, in him, you also trusted. Keep in mind that most of the Christians that Paul was writing to were Gentiles. And one of the major themes throughout this letter is the mystery that God reconciles both Jews and Gentiles into one body. So in verse 12, the idea then is that Paul is writing as a Jewish Christian saying that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Paul is referring to the remnant of Jews that placed their faith in Christ for salvation in the early days of the Christian faith. Salvation was preached first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And that phrase, to the praise of his glory, it means that all will see the effect that the grace of God has upon men and women who choose to accept his gift of life. The transformation in our lives, the redemption that takes place, this all works towards God's glory. Verse 13, now speaking to the Gentile Christians, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Verses 12 and 13 tell us that true redemption means first hearing the gospel of salvation, then we must believe the message of eternal life. The word for believe means to have faith, or to entrust your salvation to Christ. And then the word trust in our passage, it means to place our hope in Christ. So clearly, in order to be saved, there must come a point in time in your life when you place your faith in Christ. It's more than just head knowledge. It's making a decision to place your faith in eternal life in Christ. If there's no decision for Christ, then there simply is no salvation. Looking at the last phrase at the end of verse 13, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. In the New Testament times, a seal was normally a signet ring with the insignia of the official engraved into the head of the ring. It was used to mark an image of the ring in hot wax to validate documents as authentic. The symbol behind the seal was power, ownership, authority, and authenticity. So when Paul writes that believers in Christ have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, he means we belong to God. He means we are secure in Christ and that if we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, then we are children of the Lord and we belong to Christ. In verse 14, Paul switches back to talking about both Jews and Gentiles, where he says, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. A deposit or guarantee is a down payment of a purchase. In Bible times, the word for guarantee was used to refer to the earnest money in the purchase of an animal or a slave. 
The thought is this, Christ has bought us to redeem us. His down payment on the purchase is his gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul again clearly tells us that God himself puts his seal, his authority, his power in your life as a sign that you belong to him, as a sign that you are secure in Christ. Turn, if you would, real quick to 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter talks about our inheritance and gives us a great teaching on this. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting with verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away. Look at this next part. Where is our inheritance kept? Reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Our inheritance, our eternal life is reserved for us in heaven, meaning that nothing that happens down here can cause a believer in Christ to lose their salvation. And we see that our salvation is kept by the very power of God. So back in our text in Ephesians, at the end of verse 14, the seal of the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, meaning the day when we go to be with the Lord, when any remaining sin in our life will be done away with. And notice the very end of the verse, this inheritance, all of these blessings from God, the grace that he shows us is for what? To bring praise to him. History teaches of a time when Alexander the Great sent an emissary to Egypt. This emissary went without any weapons and was without any military escort. The only thing that he had with him to verify the authority of who he represented was the seal of Alexander. He met with the king of Egypt who stood with his entire army behind him. The emissary communicated to the king of Egypt the message from Alexander. The message was simple. The message was blunt. And the message was this. Discontinue any hostilities against Alexander's interests. The king of Egypt had his army behind him and he wanted to save face. So he told the emissary that he would consider the request and then let him know. The emissary responded by drawing a circle in the dirt around the king of Egypt and said, do not leave the circle without informing me of your response. Think about it. It was a pretty bold move. This emissary was unarmed. He had no weapons, no military escort. The king himself could have drawn a sword and had him cut into pieces for such a bold move against the king of Egypt. One man all by himself against the entire army of Egypt. Except for one little detail, this emissary carried the seal of Alexander. And so therefore, he carried the authority and power of Alexander. To lay a hand on the emissary would have been to lay a hand on Alexander. To disobey the emissary was to disobey Alexander. So the king of Egypt stood there pondering his options. And then he said, tell Alexander he has his request. And then the king stepped out of the circle. The seal of God's spirit should give us confidence in our lives. I'm not talking about arrogance and I'm not talking about confidence in ourselves. I'm talking about confidence in the work of Christ, confidence in the work of the Holy Spirit, confidence that Christ will come back again for his church, confidence that if we died today, we would be with Christ, confidence 
in our salvation, confidence in the forgiveness of sins that we have before God the Father because of the work of Christ, confidence in our eternal life, confidence that we can share the things of Christ with other people because we have God's Spirit indwelling us and working in our lives, confidence in our new identity in Christ so that our focus is the things of Christ instead of the focus being on ourselves. In Christ Jesus, we are free from being held hostage by the power of sin. We have been freed from the enslavement of sin. Galatians 4, 7 teaches, Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. My challenge is this. Live like you belong to Christ. Live in a manner worthy of our Savior, walking in His grace and truth. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.